Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, what a difference four years makes, eh? Four years ago, you and I were both ringside at the T-Mobile Arena for the second Gennady Golovkin-Canelo Alvarez fight. But we were quite a bit farther back from the ring than we were for the first fight between Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin. And now, for the third, we were much farther away from ringside. Uh, you were watching in a movie theater with Nigel Collins and Bill Detloff. And I was watching on my couch with Alfie, the Showtime Boxing Podcast cat. Ah, uh, yes, how the mighty have fallen, or at least... Uh... <laughs> fallen farther from where they once sat uh the nerve of canelo and golovkin going through with this fight without us it, it, it's right. quite galling really it's almost like they think two fighters in the ring matter more than two writers outside Crazy. of it. i don't know where they get that idea uh, but i i did have myself a nice night out with nigel and bill uh we found a movie theater showing the fight right around the midpoint between where the three of us all live um, the three of us combined made up about 20% of the crowd in the theater. Oh. Kind, of, kind of a shame. Watching in a movie theater can be fun when it's crowded and people are rooting loudly one way or the other. This was more small and subdued. Nobody yelling at the screen. Um, but, you know, we, we had a good time watching the fights. We grabbed dinner beforehand. Uh, we made a, a reservation for 6.30 and at 6.50. We were still waiting to be seated, which gave Bill an excuse to do the Seinfeld bit. Anyone can take the reservation. <laughs> it's holding the reservation. Uh, so uh, we did finish up dinner, though, and we got to our seats in the movie theater around 8.15. Missed the first two rounds of the first fight. Again, the, the nerve. These promoters in Vegas didn't yeah. even wait for us. No respect, Garen. No respect. Shocking. Shocking. Funny enough, small but subdued is actually the nickname of uh, Alfie, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that was that was basically his approach during the whole fight. He uh, he pretended to be asleep during it, but I could tell he was paying attention. Really. <laughs> does he does he share your last name uh, as as many pets do? Or I know you inherited him, so I don't know if he has a different last name. But I'm just trying to put the whole thing together. Alfie, small but subdued Mulvaney, or whatever the last name is. No, no, his surname is Cat. His middle name is his middle initial is T. Ah, Al yes, E Cat. <laughs> now that you mention it, I think you've said that before. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So He's Alfie... a street urchin, so you know I feel he should he should maintain his original name. So the full introduction, as done by a ring announcer, would be Alfie T. Small but subdued cat. Correct. Okay, got it. <laughs> Although of course, if you're David Diamante, it's Alfred T. Small but subdued cat. Cat. <laughs> nice, good David Diamante impression. I thought so. Yes. I thought so. Uncanny, even. <laughs> um, uh, this week on the podcast, we will be welcoming an old friend, uh, not Alfie, uh, but uh, two weeks ago, listeners will recall that we had Brian Campbell on the show. Uh, and this week, we'll be catching up with his former boxing podcast partner, Rafe Bartholomew, to get his take on a variety of fights and fighters. We'll also preview upcoming fights for Shakur Stevenson and Amanda Serrano, as well as the Joe Joyce-Joseph Parker clash. We have a lot of news to discuss. I will count down the top five heavyweights from history who would have had the best chances of beating Tyson Fury. But first, to the Raskin and Mulvaney-less <laughs> T-Mobile arena in Las Vegas, where Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin did go ahead and fight each other for the third time, went the 12-round distance with no knockdowns for the third time, and heard some eyebrow-raising scorecards for the third time. Yeah, I couldn't have imagined eight rounds into this fight that we'd have to discuss the scoring at all. And even after 12 rounds, I wasn't expecting to have to talk about the scoring, but 
Here we are again uh, with Alvarez moving officially to 2-0-1 against his rival Triple G by scores that most observers found shockingly close. It was pretty much all Canelo for the first eight rounds, looking sharp and fast, if not necessarily spectacular, while Golovkin, at age 40, appeared a shell of his once pound-for-pound worthy self. But he did crank up the offensive effort and output in the final third of the fight, and kept each of the last four rounds close, while Canelo slowed down a bit, and they fell into a long and heartfelt embrace at the end of their 36 rounds together. I gave Golovkin rounds 9 and 11. Neither round was convincing, but maybe I let sentimentality sway me a little, gave him a couple rounds, finished with a 118-110 scorecard. Judge Dave Moretti had it 116-112, and David Sutherland and the usually infallible Steve Weisfeld both had it a stunning 115-113, with Triple G winning four of the last five rounds on each of their scorecards to make it alarmingly close. Still, certainly the right guy got the win. That was Canelo, who moves to 58-2-2 with 39 KOs, while Golovkin falls to 42-2-1, 37 knockouts, all of those official blemishes coming against Alvarez. Kieran, I really didn't want to have to ask you how you scored it, but how did you score it? Uh, and, and break down both men's performances. Were you impressed with Canelo, or should he have done more? And did Triple G look any better or worse overall than you expected? So I had it 117-111. Like you, I gave Gennady 9 and 11. I also gave him 10. Um, I actually can see 116-112 if you also gave the 12th to Golovkin, which I think all three judges did. Yeah. Um, so I see that. So... 115 on 13 is a bit more difficult, but I could sort of see that too if you give him those final four rounds. Although the way that um, Weisfeld and Sutherland got there, I have a bit of a hard time with. Um, it is possible to have those scores without ever having Golovkin in a position to win the fight. Right, true. It, right. Um, you know, and the key really is how you score those last four rounds. Um, I think all three judges gave him three or four of the last five. Like I said, I gave him three of the last four. Um, Weisfeld and Sutherland gave him the first, with which I disagree vehemently. Um, Moretti gave him the sixth. All three gave him the eighth. I gave all of those rounds to Canelo. Um, But I did make a note in the sixth that, well, if this was where, if you're looking to give Golovkin a round, that could be it. Not that I thought he won it, but if you were looking at that point already for a sympathy round, and it felt as if that was the only way Golovkin at that stage was going to get around. Right. Thought mm, that could be it. Um, and although I personally thought Canelo fairly clearly won the eighth, I, I, they all gave Canelo the ninth, which is the one round that I thought Golovkin sort of more or less clearly won. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it is worth noting that all three judges scored the fight very, very similarly. And, and when that does happen, the explanation is almost simply always simply that on the ring apron, it looks like a different fight. You've been on the ring apron. I've been on the ring apron. Right. We know that it can feel differently. You notice punches more. And I did make a note early on that while Canelo was throwing like the bigger, more obvious bombs, that on the rare occasions when Golovkin was doing anything in those first few rounds, they were shorter, straighter jabs. And I thought, well, sometimes they can get missed. Maybe there are more scoring punches than we realized. But... Anyway, look, um, for whatever reason, Canelo took his foot off the gas at the end, right. whether because, as I mentioned, when I when I was pre- when we were previewing the fight and I'll know 
I predicted it would be a clear Canelo decision that was nonetheless closer than most people thought, maybe in the 116, 112 range. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I did notice that he does seem to have some stamina issues, especially at 168 or higher. Or maybe it was because that injured hand that he mentioned right. really kicked in and really hurt there. Um, and maybe that was a bounder point. I'm not sure. Um, how do I feel about how Canelo performed? Uh, for eight rounds, I thought he did very, very well, even as his punch output started to decrease toward the end of that stint. He was completely in control, had no concerns about anything Golovkin might throw back at him, took the fight to him, controlled the distance. He was the one cutting off the ring against Golovkin, which was always Golovkin's forte against his foes when Golovkin was at his peak. Uh, he was not in any danger of losing that fight, Canelo, for one second, um, which is a radical departure, of course, from the previous two bouts. Um, and even though I gave Golovkin three of the last four, there was only that one that I gave him without any hesitation at all. And I never thought he was even close to being on the cusp of turning it around. It always felt like, is he just going to make the scorecards look better? Um, you could argue that maybe Canelo should have done more to try and step on the gas and finish Golovkin off. But look, he might not be the Gennady Golovkin he used to be, but he's still Gennady Golovkin. You, you could make a case that he came into the ring und still undefeated. Um He's never come close to being stopped. Cleanly and clearly defeating him is already far more than anyone else has been able to do. And, you know, while it went off the boil in the final third, Canelo still had the fight comfortably in hand. You, I got the sense that, you know, if, if he had been told, you know what, it's getting closer, he would have been able to come out in like the 11th or the 12th and completely take it by the scruff of the neck again, I, I think, had he needed to. Um, but like I said, I do think he has stamina issues above 160. He, he's always relied on his punch quality rather than quantity. He's always been a selective puncher, but while that extra weight allows him to do more damage with his punches and doesn't seem to affect his hand speed, he, he just can't fight three minutes of every round anymore, I think, Canelo. And maybe that was the factor there and him going off the boil at the end. Um, as for Golovkin... When he was bad, he looked about as bad as I feared. Um, when he was better, he probably still looked a little worse than I thought he would at his best in that fight. I did think, and maybe, you know, to use the word you used earlier, it was a little bit of sentimentality. I thought that he would still have it in him for at least a few rounds to produce some of that old fire. Um, and even though I gave him, like I said, three rounds, it wasn't there. It it, it really wasn't. Um, he 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 did enough, I thought, to outwork Canelo for those few rounds. But it was a Canelo who'd taken his foot off the gas. Um, yeah, he he definitely did not. He looked like not the old Gennady Golovkin, but an old Gennady Golovkin. So, yeah. I mean, I'll make the same question to you. I know how you scored it, but what's your analysis of how those two guys looked? Uh, well, I'll start with how I thought Golovkin looked, because that's pretty easy for me to assess i thought he looked good for your typical 40 year old fighter you know right. able to go the distance with a guy who remember he was everybody's pound for pound number one like six months ago uh right. but for gennady golovkin compared to the absolute machine slash beast he once was he looked really really faded mm -hmm. i won't quite call him hashtag washed i'll stop short of that but yep. Just a half step above that, which is exactly how he looked against Ryota Murata, which is why I couldn't envision much of a path to victory for him coming into this fight. He performed right down to the lowest of my expectations those first seven or eight rounds. He didn't have the reflexes to avoid punches. He wasn't letting his hands go. But then he slightly exceeded my expectations down the stretch, and I thought Sergio Amora made a great observation. He was asked 
toward the end of the fight. You know, where was this Triple G earlier? And Sergio nailed it. He said Golovkin needed to get to round nine or so and then say to himself, okay, uh, I feel okay. I know I have enough in the tank to go hard for four rounds. Mm, And mm. he started opening up. He probably didn't have the confidence in his stamina to fight hard from the start and not worry that he would end up an exhausted sitting duck in the late rounds. So I thought that was a pretty good observation about why he paced himself the way he did and seemed to suddenly have this burst of energy late. Maybe the most telling moment of the first half of the fight came in round five when the ref warned Canelo for landing body shots to the lower back and Canelo was complaining back to the ref and gesturing that, hey, he's turning his body. That's why those punches are landing there. And Canelo was able to have this whole conversation and pantomime it without fear that Golovkin could hit him while he's carrying on with the ref. (laughs) That told me how comfortable Canelo felt in there. Uh, But then he didn't step on the gas and, and didn't try to really hurt Triple G and take him out. And his performance felt mildly disappointing on the whole by the time was over until he spoke about the injured left hand afterward. And so knowing that I come away saying, okay, he he fought fine. If he really was a one-handed fighter, no shame in losing a couple of the the late rounds and and going the distance, but all in all, it was fairly uninspiring. Uh, This fight was not entertaining, not memorable. Mm. It lets Canelo claim superiority, I guess, but to me, beating a 40-year-old Golovkin in this manner doesn't really raise Canelo's stock at all. Mm. You know, the one other thought that just occurred to me that I meant to make a note was when you're talking about them in the ring, Golovkin was nodding to Canelo and looking to tap gloves at the end of far too many rounds. Mm -hmm. He would not have even thought about doing that in either of the other fights. And that sort of says to me that he went in or very early realized that he didn't have it. Yes. That something was missing there, that he knew it himself. Yeah, some of the competitive fire and need and urge to win this fight was gone, and it became sort of an, okay, let's just get through this kind of a situation at a certain point. Mm. Yeah. Um, All right, let me get your quick take on where each man goes from here. Um, Golovkin most definitely is not talking retirement, very clearly stating that he wants to keep fighting. Canelo is specifically targeting a rematch with Dimitri Bivol back up at 175 pounds. How do you feel about those respective paths? So I understand why Canelo would want to get a rematch with Bivol and avenge that loss, if indeed Bivol gets past Lerdo Ramirez. Um, But I think he'd be well advised to just let it go and move on. I I know I keep harping on this today, but while 168 pounds has given him extra strength and and increased the ability to end fights with one punch, it's, it's led to him accentuating his early career way of fighting, which, you know, and that doesn't involve fighting three minutes of every round. And if you're big enough and strong enough and skilled enough to keep throwing punches and do so with at least a modicum of authority to make it difficult for Canelo to counter, you have a really good shot. The thing is, there aren't too many people who can do that, but Bivol has shown that he's absolutely one of them. Um, So I I don't know. Uh, I don't know if he wants to do that. I think that if... Well, I know he wants to do that. I don't know whether... That's the ideal path for him. Hmm. Having beaten Golovkin may maybe clearly now, finally, it's enough for him to say, all right, there's some pride. I'm going to stay at 168. Um, but against that, I'm not sure that the Canelo we saw on Saturday night beats David Benavidez either. Um, I think Benavidez, for example, might be an absolute nightmare. That big guy, 
unorthodox guy who after a few rounds will just keep coming and throw all kinds of punches at him and not give him much counter-punching opportunity. I think that might be a a bit of a nightmare scenario for him. Um, So I'm not sure. We'll see. I I think, like you said, we'll see just how bad that hand injury was and whether that was a real factor. Uh, If you'd asked me all of this after eight rounds, I would have had a much different response than I ended up having. Um, But as for Golovkin... Like you, I don't quite want to say he's shot or or washed, but he's not awfully far from it. I agree with you. He's He's been diminishing slightly fight by fight for several yep. years now, and we've talked about that. But based on Saturday night and based on Murata, the decline is now precipitous. And that's not going to change. It's not going to level out and change direction. The decline isn't going to get slower. Um, the snap has just gone from his punches. The the authority the and combinations just aren't there anymore. Even as he started to decline and was throwing fewer combinations that and, and relying much more on his jab, he became much more of a jab-heavy fighter over the last couple of years. That jab was still a power punch, mm-hmm. um, but it isn't anymore. Um, look, he'll still be able to beat B-level guys in the 160 pound division, but I make him like a clear underdog against say a Jamal Charlo right now. Um, even though Charlo hasn't exactly wowed anyone of late. And the problem is the longer he waits, the more he goes on, the greater likelihood he is to get knocked off in perhaps embarrassing fashion by somebody who just isn't really fit to lace up his shoes. And that's how it ends for an awful lot of people. And I would hate for that to end that way for Golovkin, but I'm a bit worried now that that's, what's going to happen to him. Um, uh, I, I'd love for him to walk away now, but it clearly doesn't sound like he has any interest no. in doing that. He seems to think he'd be fought pretty well. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I actually wouldn't be surprised if they're both past their peaks now. Glovkin obviously much farther past his peak than Canelo, but Canelo's had an awful lot of fights, even though he's not very old, um, against a lot of tough opponents. I've talked before about his knee and how that's been a problem for him. Now he's getting these other injuries. Um I don't know. Uh, look, they're both going in the Hall of Fame, but obviously, in the first ballot, obviously. But their rivalry might be one of the primary reasons neither may anymore be the force that he once was. Um, and talking of that rivalry, and indeed of the Hall of Fame, when we look back in however many years, when they are both in the Hall, how are we going to remember this trilogy, do you think? Well, I hope we'll think mostly of the first two fights, uh, especially the second one, which was easily the best of the three. And in my view, the fight of the year in 2018, we'll probably remember them as each other's chief rival, unless Canelo goes on to have a bigger rivalry in the next few years. But it seems unlikely that anyone will surpass Golovkin as his primary rival. You know, it won't be you can't mention one without the other the way it is with Gaddy and Ward or Brer and Morales or Vasquez and Marquez. But they kind of go together in a sense. We will have fond memories of 36 often excellent rounds between two Hall of Famers. And I think those of us who witnessed the fights will remember it as Canelo catching Triple G at just the right time. He waited until the right moment to have a decent shot at winning in 2017. And then the third fight happened when the result was nearly a foregone conclusion. Prime against Prime, say 2014 Triple G against 2020 Mm. Canelo, catch weight of 164 or something. It's still a toss up to me. Um, I hope that people will not look at the 201 score for Canelo 
and assume that Canelo was the greater middleweight. Um, yeah. You know, I, he's had the better all around career. He's the more slam dunky of the two slam dunk Hall of Famers, certainly. But just among middleweight champs, I would still certainly rank Golovkin higher uh, based on what he did in that division. And I hope people will recall that those first two fights could have gone either way uh, and that the judges played a big role in determining who won this rivalry. Um, but you never know quite what details are going to get lost to time. Uh, again, that 201 record for Canelo. I hope people maintain some perspective on, on what it really meant. But ultimately, good rivalry, good trilogy, not quite the stuff of legends and must-see documentaries, I wouldn't say, but uh, a, a good trilogy overall with a slightly anticlimactic end. Yeah. Um, let's talk for a few minutes about the undercard, which gave us three distance fights of varying degrees of competitiveness. Easily the best and the closest, despite what a couple of judges said, was 115-pound titleist Jesse Bam Rodriguez scoring his third victory of 2022 via hard-fought decision over Israel Gonzalez. The undefeated Rodriguez lost a point for a low blow in the eighth but won 114 to 113 on one card and by fairly ludicrous scores of 117, 110 and 118-109 on the other two. Not nearly as close was super middleweight Ali Akhmadov's 10-round victory over veteran Gabe Rosado. Not much drama there as the quick-fisted Akhmadov won 100 to 90 on all three cards. And in the opener, unbeaten middleweight prospect Austin Ammo Williams scored a ninth-round knockdown to separate himself against Kieran Conway, who spells Kieran with an O. What a weirdo. <laughs> uh, and uh, Ammo Williams won by scores of 97-92 twice and 96-93. Kieran with an A. Uh, what fights or fighters on this undercard made an impression on you? Oh, clearly for me the co-main uh, and and particularly the winner. Um, I scored it sort of in the in between the uh, the official scores. I had it one sixteen one eleven for Rodriguez. Honestly, after the first couple of rounds, I thought Rodriguez won virtually every round, even though Gonzalez kept a lot of them close. Uh, I, I thought. Gonzalez boxed very well indeed um, and really maximized his reach advantages and his solid boxing skills. I mean, this is a guy who went the distance with Chocolatito after all, so it's not super surprising that he performed well. Um, but I thought nonetheless that once he got going, I thought Rodriguez was very impressive. His pivots were terrific, um, almost Lomachenko-esque at times. Um, the way he sort of steadily and progressively uh, ground down Gonzalez, the way he shifted distance and angles, worked at the body and switched upstairs. Uh, look, it wasn't a spectacular and destructive performance like we've seen against Quadras and even more so Sorong Visai. But, you know, as Doug Fisher noted on Twitter during the fight, those two were past their best grades. This was the first time at this level, at this weight, that Bam had taken on a skilled veteran who, well, not quite at the, who, whose peak was certainly short of those other two, still had pretty much everything that had, that had brought him to the dance, you know? So mm. I, I didn't think, I don't know what you thought, I didn't think that the zone crew was necessarily watching the same fight as me, to be honest. And, and as much as I respect Daniel Jacobs, I certainly couldn't agree with Gonzalez winning as, as he had it. Um, but I do understand that several rounds in there would have been really close. And there were quite a few that I was giving to Gonzalez until Bam just came up with some a really good sequence and that nudged it over to him. Um, on my card, anyway. Um, as for the other two, solid performance Makhmadov, who obviously didn't want to go hell for leather and try and close, given that he got knocked out and the close of a of a fight he'd been winning just a couple bouts ago, and given that what Rosado did to Melakusiev is still fresh in the memory. Um, 
And Williams Conway was fine for what it was, a, a pay-per-view opener. Um, nothing particularly remarkable, though a, though a good solid performance, I thought, by Williams. And indeed by Conway, who boxed very well for as well as he was able to. Um, incidentally, my mom would frequently spell my name with an O when I was younger. And I was quite hmm. confused, actually, as a, as a wee young'un, as to how exactly it was supposed to be spelled. And if I understand the situation correctly, I believe there'd been a bit of a mix-up in the birth certificate and that she planned to spell it with an O, oh. but it ended up with an A on the birth certificate. And that's where we are. And, well, I'm pretty happy with the way it wound up, personally. Okay. Hmm. Who knew that I was unlocking an anecdote by pointing out the different spellings of Kieran? All right. And this time, literally... That is the kind of analysis you would not get on another podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, any takeaways yourself from the undercard? Uh, a few quick observations. Um, I thought Bam Rodriguez did win, but had it a little closer than you. Uh, a bit unusual to see Patricia Morse Jarman, who can be unpredictable, uh, handing in what <laughs> I thought was clearly the best scorecard. Um, but the main thing to me is, you know, Bam fought fine. Gonzalez is no easy out. He's clever and capable and brought his A-game, and I don't think Bam's stock goes down at all just because it wasn't a blowout. There was one very weird Kenny Bayless moment late in that Yes. where Bam hit Gonzalez low, and Gonzalez went down, and Bayless neither ruled it low nor counted it as a knockdown. Yeah. I think he would have been fine to rule it low but not take another point, you know, instead give an additional warning before taking another point. Um. But it had to be either a low blow or a knockdown. Yeah. I, I'd be curious to hear Kenny's thinking on that. Um, Emma Williams, I thought the commentators went a bit overboard in their praise of him. Um, he's not polished. He needs to mm. throw straighter punches. He's a decent prospect, but he certainly doesn't look elite to me. Great. And lastly, you know you're not escaping without at least one random Raskin observation. So here goes. Uh, at one point during the Rosado fight when they were showing Freddie Roach, I said to Nigel and Bill, um, and, and this comment is only going to be relevant to people who know what Nigel and Bill each currently look like, but so be it. Um, I said Freddie Roach is the exact midpoint between <laughs> Nigel and Bill. Like if you were doing a morphing special effect and starting at Bill and yep. ending at Nigel, halfway there, you're at Freddie Roach. It's so, true. Apologies to the 99% of our audience who don't really know what Bill or Nigel look like, but I, I figured you'd appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, all right. Joining us now to engage in some more Canelo Triple G analysis, as well as various other boxing banter, is our old friend Rafe Bartholomew. He's a former editor at Grantland, a former writer for The Athletic, the former co-host of the State of Combat podcast with one Brian Campbell. Jeez, Rafe, you have almost as many boxing formers in your career as Eric and I do. Um, he's also... The creator of the much-loved and much-missed Respect Box newsletter. Uh, he's also the author of Pacific Rims, Beerman, Balling and Fit Flops on the Philippines' Unlikely Love Affair with Basketball, and Two and Two, McSorley's, My Dad, and Me. Rafe, hello. Welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Guys, thank you. It, it is great to be back. Uh, as you know, I, I respect box. Uh, <laughs> and, and also, Karen, I appreciate you laboring through the entire subtitle of that book. I never do that. <laughs> Listen, the subtitle's there for a reason. We're we're going to use it. Right. The subtitle actually makes it sound like those are all your books, but it's a bit confusing. But yes, there you go. Right. Yes. Um, so, Rafe, in your time on The Boxing Beat, two of your most defined lanes were, A, one of the first writers to jump on the Golovkin train, and B, the man who coined the term heel Canelo. Uh, so I want to start with the former, uh, Gennady Golovkin. I, I remember you saying in the arena right after... 
one of the first two Canelo Triple G fights, I'm not sure which one, that it was sad knowing Golovkin's best chance to beat this guy had already passed, uh, that he was already starting to decline. Certainly, he's a lot further gone now at age 40 than he was at 35 or 36. Was it tough for you watching this fight on Saturday night, especially those first eight rounds? And also, are, are people already starting to forget just how exceptional Golovkin was in his prime? Was it tough? I think for me, the first fight might have been the toughest, even though that was the one that I did score. That was the only one I scored for Golovkin. Uh, I scored the second a draw and I, I did not. I scored the third one a little wider than the seven to five scorecards, but yes. I'm not that upset about those. Uh, but the first one is the one that really kind of shook me because that was the one where one I don't I don't think Canelo fought a a brilliant fight right he was uh, probably the least active he was in any of the trilogy which is unusual for the first fight um, uh, given the age curves of, of both men and uh, and and it just you could say and I remember Breadman Edwards saying this on your show last week uh, Golovkin even in that fight couldn't pull the trigger and he looked he looked not he looked older he, and and also just like he didn't know exactly how to handle this higher level opponent like he had finally mm-hmm. met his match which uh, mm-hmm. I think the the three uh, fights prove was true on on some level although he was 35 we can say that um, that was the one where I'm like oh man the guy who I thought was that good got his moment and didn't quite seize it. Hmm. Uh, and and so that was the one that really left me crestfallen. After that, uh, look, the, the, the second fight, I think, is a masterpiece from both of them. Uh, both of them come out and, well, Canelo makes the first adjustment, Triple G makes the second one, and the action is great throughout, the suspense, the twists, the, the just sort of seeing both of them fight different styles than they are necessarily known for against probably the best opponents of their careers. I mean, you could definitely for Golovkin, um, you know, you could make arguments for Lara, I suppose, uh, or other guys for, for Canelo. Um, but anyway, the second fight uh, kind of was so great. It rises above my, uh, whatever, my soft spot for Golovkin mm. and my, my irrational kind of like, look, I've been, <laughs> I've been talking myself into Canelo opponents since Kermit Cintron. All right. I, I go way back. <laughs> I, I, I Angulo, you name it. I talked myself into almost every one of them until until the Triple G fights when I just had to admit this guy is great too, and he's not going to lose to anyone but another great fighter on a great night. Um, and uh, so anyway, last night was not that bad in after after all of that right. because uh, I, I saw you tweeted, Eric. Uh, if you had seen uh, Golovkin fight Murata recently, earlier this year, or any of the fights that happened since the second Canelo fight, really, Steve Rolls, Zerometa, uh, you know, Derevinchenko, uh, he won those fights, and, and the Derevinchenko one is disputed, but he didn't look like the, the same fighter, and, and the age cliff was, was there already, so it was not a surprise, and I didn't take it as hard as perhaps... Uh, you know, I might have. And and I, I, I've talked so long. Who really cares about the second question? But I'll, I'll sort of I'll sort of rephrase the second question a little bit just to get your quick response to it is sort of as as a huge Golovkin supporter, especially in his prime, a believer in this guy before most people, most people had jumped on that bandwagon. Is there a concern that he sort of remembered for the Canelo fights and this portion of his career more so than for those few years prior to the Canelo fights? Absolutely. I think that there's no there's no question that is going to be part of his legacy going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not fair 
life is not fair. Boxing is less mm. fair than life, I think, um, at least based on what I've observed. Um, <laughs> certainly how they treat their writers, right, guys? Um, <laughs> and uh, I so so and, and I guess the that to me, he was well compensated for Golovkin was well compensated in those three fights for right. uh, sort of the the way that. Revisionist history will now look at him. Oh, he he just ran through a bunch of bums, which is I mean, look, they weren't he was avoided by a lot of fighters who who would have been better names on that resume for a very long time. There's a reason no one, you know, no one of substance before Danny Jacobs stepped to him when he was probably what, 34 or 35 already, then 35 when he first fought Canelo. I think the Jacobs fight played a role in Canelo being willing to uh finally accept that challenge. And Canelo was up to it. Credit to Canelo for being a great fighter, too. Credit to Golovkin for being really good in his late 30s. And even last night, as a 40-year-old, three weeks older than me, he uh, he still, look, he, he I as uh, say what we will about the scoring, about his performance, about how he really wasn't in the fight. Um, he still looked better than a lot of the recent opponents at 168. Yeah. yeah. So Gennady seems to no longer view Canelo as a heel. They, they kind of hugged it out. To my mild disappointment, I must say, after the fight, um, it's beginning to sound as if you no longer view Canelo as a heel, but perhaps you can correct us. But um, what did you think of his performance? And also, is he making a mistake if he decides to try and avenge his loss to Bivol next? You know, this is something I actually want to ask you both as well. I think I, the, the most interesting question coming out of this fight is... Uh, trying to evaluate Canelo's appoint, uh, performance and what he should do next, because uh, I didn't pay a whole lot of I, I didn't I didn't take it that seriously last week, but I believe um, uh, you know Rob Tebbit from the UK of Boxing Social uh, got some some viral video love last week uh, with a clip where he surmised that maybe Canelo might be a, starting to to slow down himself and. There was, as look, he won clearly, uh, and and really, while the reason I'm not so mad about the scorecards in 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 last night's fight is, you know, it seemed like Golovkin made up the same way in a basketball blowout, you make up some points in garbage time. That's what that's what Golovkin was able to do in the late rounds, and obviously, uh, Canelo had to survive those rounds, but he didn't really have that much trouble doing that. Um, but yeah, so so Canelo's performance, he didn't seem to have. He seemed to have a harder time finding Golovkin for really clean, flashy shots, certainly than he did in the second fight, maybe even than in the first fight. And his he, he again, we saw him look a little tired or appear to be perhaps tired down the stretch of a fight over the last four rounds. Um, it makes you wonder if if he is if if going up to 168, taking on this sort of little more seek and destroy style where he is, you know, he seems to be less active. Um, I, you know, we will build compu box to see if that's uh, necessarily true. But the that this this next stage of Canelo's development um, might be the first step towards us seeing him move into a a a, a slow decline, whatever that will mean for him. Uh, I, I guess did did either of do do either of you see that after this after you know the Bevo loss and this look he won clearly but he didn't win impressively is that fair to say? Dude, it is uncanny. It's like there's an echo in my headset because <laughs> that is basically exactly what I just said. 
in the, yeah. in the, well, in the previous if, if, if you, you can exp- on. If you exact can expect nothing point. else from the Showtime Boxing Championship Boxing Podcast, it is uh, two or three people uh, <laughs> right. having the same exact view on everything. There's there's something about being part of this Skype connection that it just seeps from one brain to another. There's some <laughs> osmosis going on or, or something. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I before you came on, uh, I did ask Kieran about Canelo's future and and whether he should fight Bivol and all and and he sort of hit some as he said he hit some of these same points but I didn't weigh in on on specifically the idea of fighting Bivol and it does feel like sort of a case where maybe Canelo is indeed slowing down just just that fractional amount and maybe he's going to be at risk of losing to some lesser guy pretty soon so maybe it makes the most sense to go ahead and take his ultimate challenge and try to avenge his loss because better to lose to Bivol again than to start losing to, to guys that, uh, that are on a lower level than that, I suppose. Look, I, I, I like the, I do, I do support Canelo wanting and taking a, a Bivol rematch next year in his next fight, if possible, whenever, uh, because, that's the kind of that is the kind of career Canelo has had. I mean, I I I I love to nitpick Canelo, and I can point to you know some of the timeline issues on when he decided to begin the trilogy with Triple G stuff like that. But if you look at it, this is not a fighter who has shied away from challenges throughout his career, yeah. and to have that clear loss to anyone other than Floyd Mayweather on his record, and then want to immediately you know write that uh mm-hmm. chain you know make sure that that is not that blemish does not go forward on his legacy i think that's the kind of fighter canelo is and i and i i think it's how he should be in terms of mentality and he can improve and and look he's gonna still get some love on the scorecards in all likelihood so it's not crazy to think that he could win that fight the same time, Bivol is a terrible matchup for him, especially mm-hmm. if he seems to be getting a little slower and less active. I mean, Bivol might have better feet than Canelo had at welterweight, let alone at 168 or 175. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's 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 shift to some other topics. Um, this one is related to your love of Triple G, uh, another fighter from the same region, Oleksandr Usyk, who... I don't know if you identified his talent before anyone else, but you were the first, to my knowledge, to identify his charming goofiness. Um, has Usyk exceeded your expectations as a fighter with what he's doing at heavyweight, or or did you believe from early on that he could have this level of success in him? I believe so. It's uh, my my journey with Usyk is pretty interesting because, as uh, some listeners may know. I was a, a bit of a cruiserweight division freak uh, yes. where I just loved the mix of uh, Soviet bloc uh, fighters. You know, the, back in the original sort of, if we go back to the uh, World Boxing Super 6 cruiserweight uh, tournament when they had Kudryashov, the the Russian hammer, who you know it can't fi- can't box at all, but has had incredibly heavy hands, and uh, you know uh, Ilunga Makabu, who's still in the mix, almost almost fought Canelo. Good <laughs> lord, I, I think Canelo might win that one. Um, in any case, it's a fun. It was a fun decision for me, and Usyk, I actually was not high on him at the beginning because. Uh, I and this when I say at the beginning, this would be when he was fighting 
Tabisu Mchunu, the, the fights that Kieran got to meet him at when he was yeah. covering him for HBO. Mchunu, Michael Hunter, and f- which is funny because now that fight looks like a really kind of impressive win given the kind of heavyweight that Hunter has become. But at the time, it's like, ah, you know, Usyk is this gold medalist. He starts slow. He he never he never really seems to hurt guys. He It was this feeling that, oh, is he really as good as they say he is? Will he have the enough pop to keep... Um, you know, the, the, the guys like Uniel Dorticos and uh, and Myris Briedis when they were both uh, in the championship, championship mix, uh, Murat Gassiev when they were at, at Cruiserweight, does he have enough power to keep them off of him? And what I can, I think the turning point was maybe the Glowatsky fight when Usyk, uh, you just saw him just torture guys like, mm. uh, I forget Glowatsky's first name, but he's, he's gone now. Kristoff. Kristoff, Kristoff, yeah. Uh, and uh, and Marco Hook, just torture him with his movement, with his angles, and and just make them so tired that then I started to believe. And then the, the personality came in with all the I Am Feel stuff, the early hype videos, where, and his dancing, all of that stuff. Uh, it won me over, and um, by the time he got to heavyweight, I did believe in him, even with the Chaz Witherspoon fight and... The Derek Chisora fights where, you know, he, he didn't again, he doesn't necessarily always look great against um, opponents you would expect him to wipe the floor with because he can't he, he's not a knockout puncher. So he's going to he, it's not the kind of fighter he is and he rises to the occasion. So while I, I didn't expect him to beat AJ in their first fight. I did believe it was more of a possibility than I think the, cons- the sort of conventional wisdom said in the first one. Um, and then I wasn't surprised that he managed to do it again. So I've had my own like uh, character arc voyage of discovery <laughs> in, in learning to appreciate Usyk. But now I feel like I have a decent hold on it. And again, look, if we if we look forward to a possible uh, undisputed fight with Tyson Fury, will I favor Fury? Yes, because it is hard to see someone with, Usyk's dimensions being able to beat Tyson Fury. However, it was hard to see someone with Usyk's dimensions beat Anthony Joshua. And he did twice pretty convincingly uh, and only seems to get better. And he has, it, it, look, I, I would, that's the fight I probably want. To, I know it's not the, the money-making fight that the business wants to see necessarily, right? We want to see something with Anthony Joshua first. Um, but still, that fight, uh, or I guess we're disappointed pointed that Anthony Joshua didn't win the rematch to, to set up a Fury fight for right. disputed. Um, but that fight, Usyk and Fury, the, the mental strength that they both bring in, the fact that they both seem to rise, you know, to meet every challenge, um, having them do that to each other would just, I, I think it would be an incredible fight. And, uh, and, and Fury relies on being faster and more agile than most plotting heavyweights. That won't be the case with, with Usyk. So your connection to the Philippines is well known. Uh, we haven't spoken to you on a, one of our podcasts since Manny Pacquiao retired. So uh, since then, he's done what we all long suspected he would one day do, and that's run for president. And he did not do well. Um, obviously, Filipino politics is complicated, as I suppose politics in many countries is. But do you have a sense as to whether his extraordinary levels of popularity are sustainable in the Philippines if he's now no longer a world championship boxer but just another politician, or is he not just another politician? Can he never actually just be another politician? Well, it's interesting to see what his next act will be if he if he chooses to stay in politics. You know, now now that he has lost, now after the presidential election, which he lost, and look, I don't mean to judge our brethren in in boxing media, but I I 
always said that no constituency is more convinced of Manny's chances of winning the the <laughs> the presidency of the Philippines than the uh, U.S. boxing media, which is because that's because they're only. Their only source in the Philippines is Bob Arum, who is like, he's going, like who has been saying he would be president someday for ten years. Um, that was that. There, there's more to it than that, and that's sort of what played out in the election. Um, he he's now he now doesn't hold a, a position in public office. You know, he he gave up his seat in the Senate mm-hmm. um, because it you know his term was over when he ran for president. So, um, will he stay in politics in all likelihood? Because in the Philippines, that is a uh, you know that is a way of of guaranteeing income. Unfor- unfortunately, uh, for for one, you know, for for the person in office and their family, um, often more so than their constituents. Uh, and look, Manny, to his credit, is is his the stories of his generosity are real. Um, mm. You know, but he he also probably would not be above a little bit of self dealing in office, uh, which is kind of par for the course. Um, judge it how you want. I think that what he did for the country in his incredible run, especially like the Philippines, you know, America was on board the Manny Pacquiao train from what the like maybe the Barrera fights, the Morales fights through Mayweather uh, or through whatever came after Mayweather until through Ugas. Um, The Philippines has been on board since 1998. (laughs) Uh, So and, and he really I mean, really, every time he won a title, it was national news and and he because he started fighting on these local i mean like fighting in gyms in in mandaluyong city and all over the country against guy you know uh, well rolando torrecampo the guy who beat him then but anyway he's people just knew him and he always has carried himself no matter how rich he got how famous he got he always carried himself as this icon this sort of like like avatar of the just dude on the street. I mean, he really mm. just oozes it. Um, and he's never lost it, which is e- impressive either in terms of his character or in terms of his ability to project that. And I think that to some extent, he'll always have that and will always be remembered as that. Um, if he stays in, like, politi- politicians are not, they win, <laughs> they may win elections, but they aren't necessarily popular in the country. So if he stays in politics, is he'll probably be remembered more. He, he could start to be remembered more as a politician than as an athlete. And that might dent his popularity in the country. Mm. Um, if he doesn't go back into politics from here, he, his, his reputation as an athlete probably will just supersede and come back in and he'll still be royalty wherever he wants to go, whatever he wants to do. You know, he's, he's taken care of for life. All right. I, I want to ask you about someone else who is uh, balancing his reputation as an athlete with his reputation as something else. Uh, this is nothing <laughs> like Manny Pacquiao, but I'm curious. Jesse where, Vargas? Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Politics have nothing to do with this, uh, really. But I'm curious where you stand. Jake on, Paul. Yes, on the whole Jake Paul boxing thing. Uh, is, you know, Do you have car crash rubber deck interest? Do you have legit interest? Do you have no interest at all? Where Where are you on this? I'm not going to waste your time on this one. I have close to no interest at all. Okay. Um, okay. I root against him. That's all I say. I don't. <laughs> I don't like it. Okay. I'm sure he has gotten better. Clear. He takes it as seriously as someone who is. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but he's he's taking it seriously on some level. 
Um, I will. I I would prefer it to end. I I have. I don't think. Look, the only thing that gets on my nerves about this is this uh, this argument that we trot out that it's somehow good for the sport. He's bringing attention to other fighters. I suppose. Look, yes, it is nice that he has got. Uh, actually, it is uh, all right. Now I have to. Now I have to be responsible. <laughs> it is actually great that he has gotten Amanda Serrano some some really good paydays. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is nice that he has gotten Montana Love a little bit of uh, love. But for the most part, it, we've seen this. Every circus thing that comes through and gets a lot of attention, yes, it gets a lot of attention. People talk about boxing. Not really. They don't talk about real boxing. Like, I don't think that the people who watch Jake Paul's shows or buy them are going to be lining up for – crossing my fingers it happens errol spence versus terence crawford on showtime someday um and and so that connection i i i would like to see that narrative maybe soft pedaled a bit more than it gets we don't have to justify it it is what it is people want to buy it people want to make money off of it go for it uh it won't be my dollar but it'll be somebody right so you said you would prefer it to end uh to quote a great man you're saying you think he should finish I, I, yes, uh, it, look, it might sound horrible, but I, I think he should finish. <laughs> okay. Um, so finally, look, I listed all your former boxing outlets at the top of the segment. Any chance we see you back in the sphere again? And specifically, you know, maybe one more post Canelo Triple G respect box newsletter for all time's sake? Oh, that's a very sweet idea. I hadn't thought of that, but I still have the list and, um, <laughs> Shoot, why not? Let me see what yes. I can do. I'll try and throw that together. Uh, you know, I did, as you, uh, I don't expect you all to be tracking my tweets, but I did tweet out last night what I uh, I do intend to keep as the final Heel Canelo update, at least on Twitter. Yes. Maybe I would uh, <laughs> augment that with a newsletter. Uh, but, it, you know, a photo of, a screenshot of him wearing his, by the way, Canelo, Pretty tacky to steal Sergio Martinez's crown idea. <laughs> That's that, that like the Burger King crown belongs to Maravilla and no one else. Like get a new gimmick. Um, this, that, these are the little things that bother me about Canelo. They don't take away from his greatness as a fighter, but it's like, come on, man, come up with something new. Um, you're probably paying a hundred people to think of things for you, and this is what you got. Um, so anyway, uh, yes, that the last heel Canelo update came out on Twitter, but. <laughs> Kieran, that's a great idea. One one more newsletter. Also, shoot, I, I, it's not a bad idea, uh, you know, for the brand, for the business to, to keep that alive, to make to make to keep people on tenterhooks just a little bit to think he might come back someday. There you go. See, what I really like about this interview is you started out with just giving Canelo his props and it only took a little bit of pushing <laughs> and you're back to the full on. God, this guy irritates me. Uh, he'll full heel Canelo at the end. So yeah, I definitely think we need a full newsletter for you to get it all out. You made it happen, Kieran. You made <laughs> it right. happen. We, well, need, you, we, need, well, you, we need the acknowledgement. I will, I will be invoicing you specifically. <laughs> and, and you do still have to write it. So when you say we, right. that, that we made it happen, nothing has happened yet. We've planted the idea, but, uh, you're you're a writer. We're writers. We understand ideas. Ideas and execution are two different things. Indeed, that's well, good. Listeners understand. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Hey, Rafe. Look, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. We're very grateful, and I think we are all here very, very feel. Thank you. <laughs> very good quality podcast. <laughs> Our thanks again, as always, to Rafe. Uh, let's look ahead to. 
Next weekend's fight. Uh, there are two noteworthy cards, one on Friday, one on Saturday. The Friday card airs on ESPN and features a £130 titleist, an arguable pound-for-pound entrant, Shakur Stevenson, fighting in his hometown of Newark, New Jersey, against Robson Conceição of Brazil, who is coming off an impressive unanimous decision win over previously unbeaten prospect Xavier Martinez. But right before that, lost a close and controversial unanimous decision to Oscar Valdez, the same man Stevenson dominated last time out. So, Eric... Does that suggest this should be easy for Stevenson? And is there a danger that we're entering a prolonged stretch now of Shakur facing good, but not great fighters and not getting tested? So I do expect this to be fairly easy for Stevenson, but that's not a knock on Conceição. It's just an acknowledgement that Stevenson is that skilled and might soon be part of the pound-for-pound number one conversation and can win by near shutout against any number of very good fighters. I would expect we're looking at the kind of fight where Shakur is made to work a bit, but he still wins like 10 or 11 out of 12 rounds, the same way Pernell Whitaker and Floyd Mayweather and mm-hmm. Roy Jones used to against this level of opposition. And and I'm not saying that Shakur Stevenson is on the same level as those guys, of course, but he could prove to be with enough mm-hmm. time. Um, and, and that brings me to your second question about whether we're in store for a lot of frustration and or boredom as we wait to see him tested against someone yeah i don't see anyone at 130 who has a serious chance of beating him um hector garcia you know the the where the hell did he come from guy that we've been impressed (laughs) with the two times we've seen him recently he looks like the biggest threat at 130 to stevenson to my eyes and Honestly, I could see Shakur winning that one by near shutout, too. So basically, this comes down to when Stevenson is going to move to lightweight and who will still be there when he does. You know, put him in against Lomachenko or Tank Davis or Devin Haney or Ryan Garcia, maybe even Isak Cruz, and he should get tested. None of those are fights where I know the winner going in. Um, But until then, yeah, I I think post-Oscar Valdez... We are now hitting a ho-hum stretch for Shakur. So Mm. set your expectations low. Assume his first real test won't come until at least 2024. And then maybe you can be pleasantly surprised if it happens sooner than that. Mm. Uh, Saturday's notable fight card is on ESPN Plus and takes place in Manchester, England. A battle of heavyweight contenders with undefeated Joe Joyce, the modest favorite over former title challenger Joseph Parker. And in the co-feature, top female fighter Amanda Serrano drops back down to featherweight to face Sarah Mafood. Kieran, how tough is it to pick a winner in the main event? And do you think Serrano gets any kind of test from Mafood? It is tough to pick a winner in, in that main event, although I am leaning somewhat solidly in one direction. Uh, you and I are both fans of Joseph Parker, of course, for all kinds of reasons, but um, I think he's probably in for a tough one here. Uh, I, I favor Joyce, but I think this is going to be a rough, tough fight for both men. I, I think that Parker's best opportunity is to deploy his boxing skills and his footwork, and he has pretty good footwork for such a big guy, and he does have good skills. He's a better pure boxer than a lot of heavyweights, uh, and he does also have the advantage of carrying some pop behind those skills. So he's a good all-round package, and that's why he's been near the top of the division for a while now but at the same time you know you look at his record and who he's for and he actually hasn't faced off all that often with others at the very top of the division and when he has the results are mixed um lost to joshua but took him the distance lost on points to dillian white scored a controversial but justifiable majority decision over andy ruiz scored a controversial but justifiable decision over derek jasora before pointing him much more clearly in a rematch it's good but it isn't great um joe joe joyce and fewer fights 
you could argue has more top-rate wins, stopping Daniel Dubois, stoppage wins over Carlos Takam, Christian Hammer, Bermans Tavern, points win over Brian Jennings. It's a pretty solid record, really. And the thing is, he's quite easy to underestimate, is Joe Joyce. I'm guilty of underestimating him at times in the past, including going into the Dubois fight, um, because he doesn't do anything flashy. Um, he doesn't do anything that catches the eye. He seems slow because actually he is kind of slow. Yes. But his <laughs> fundamentals are surprisingly solid. His jab is thumping and devastating. And he has the ability to make the ring very, very small. He has tremendous economy of movement. Um, and he he sort of uses it to slowly engulf his prey. You know, an opponent might start pretty well against him. But, you know, after a few rounds, he finds that he's not getting the distance he wants, isn't able to move around the ring the way he wants. And suddenly he's in trouble because Joyce is on him. Um, and I do think that Parker will start the better and be up after five or six rounds. But Joyce is just, he's kind of like the Terminator. He just keeps coming slowly, slowly. And I think you'll make Parker look a little ragged by the end. I do think the fight will go the distance. I don't think it'll be a wipeout on the scorecard by any means. But if I were pushed, I think that Joyce would win a close but clear unanimous decision. Um, as for Serrano Mafud, you know what? Mafud's actually pretty decent. She is certainly, unless there is someone out there who wants to correct me, the best boxer of any gender to emerge from the Faroe Islands. Um, she is technically quite good, actually. Um, she's got good balance. She boxes compactly. She's got decent hand speed, solid defense, nice head movement. I think she's pretty good. The problem is, at that highest level, She's a teeny tiny bit predictable. She's a jab, straight right hand kind of boxer, which is fine. Unless you're up against Amanda Serrano, mm. who has so much versatility, so many skills. Ridiculous power, of course. Look, I don't think Mafood's going to crumble. She's going to show that she belongs and that she deserves to be in the ring with Serrano. But that doesn't mean she's going to bring anything that Serrano hasn't been before or anything to keep Serrano at bay or anything to trouble her. Um, I think Serrano's going to take over this fight fairly early. Um and probably put it on my food for a while before securing the stoppage. But but rather like you with Stevenson and Concesau, and what you said there, it's not a knock on Concesau. I'm not knocking my food here. That um I do think she's a good solid boxer. But Amanda Serrano, my God, she's she's just something else. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the news. Um last week we bypassed the undercard. Uh this week there's no main event because the two main event worthy topics are a little bit too up in the air to discuss. There are reports that Errol Spence versus Terence Crawford is nearly done, but they're not confirmed by any on-the-record sources, so we'll kick that can down the road and hope to have firm news by next week's pod. Uh, Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua have reportedly, quote, agreed to terms for a December 3rd bout. Well, who knows if that really moves us actually any closer to a fight, and we just talked about that last week, so no main event this week. Let's just split the undercard in two. Uh, here's half of it uh, regarding fights happening or not happening. Uh, Vasily Lomachenko versus Jermaine Ortiz that we've talked about before. That's now officially on for October 29th at the Hulu Theatre at Madison Square Garden. The co-feature is expected to be a 10-round featherweight bout between Robesi Ramirez and Jesse Magdaleno. Also announced two more fights on the Deontay Wilder-Robert Hellenius pay-per-view undercard on October 15th. In addition to the Caleb Plant anthony Durrell co-feature, the card will feature Frank Sanchez versus Carlos Negron at heavyweight and Gary Antonio Russell versus Emmanuel Rodriguez in a rematch to their 16 Second head clash, no contest. Uh, a 108-pound unification bout has been scheduled for November 1st in Saitama, Japan, with ESPN Plus carrying it. Hiroto Kiyokuchi versus Kenjiro uh, Tarachi. Uh, promoter Eddie Hearn 
said that Katie Taylor's next fight will be on October 29th. Headlining a card at Wembley Arena, no opponent indicated yet. And one bit of bad news. Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lara is postponed due to Wood suffering a torn biceps in training. But the rest of the September 24th card will go on with Kid Galahad versus Maxi Hughes moved up to main event status. Uh, Eric, which of these fights do you find worthy of comment? Uh, so first, I heard our friends at Morning Combat ragging on Ortiz as a waste of Lomachenko's time. But as we said a few weeks ago, we both think it's pretty solid for yeah. a shake-off-the-rust fight. I kind of like it. And I like Ramirez Magdaleno also. Solid card there. Uh, Russell and Rodriguez, I'm glad they're trying again. We are fans of all Gary Russells here. Mm-hmm. Uh, although... Lefty versus righty. I'm coming into this worried that it happens again. <laughs> uh, I'll take the over on 16 seconds this time, but uh, I don't know. This might just prove to be a troublesome clash of styles. Emphasis on clash. Yes. Uh, Wood, Lara, that's unfortunate. Uh, hopefully Wood heals quickly and they can reschedule it. Uh, by the way, I take every opportunity like this to remind our listeners that bicep is not a word. Uh, <laughs> now, I don't know, Kieran, if you do chordal or octurtal. Uh, those are the either four wordles at once or eight wordles at once. I don't know. I if do you... not. Okay. Well, one of them snuck bicep in there one time. Um... I was most appalled. I, I would think our beloved wordle would never would never. Did do you that write a us. sternly <laughs> crafted letter to the editor? Well, that would take effort, Kieran. Oh, that's true. Gotta gotta draw the line somewhere. Understood. Yes. Um, Last thing here, uh, Kyoguchi versus Taraji. You'll be happy to know, Kieran, that Taraji is number one in the TBRB rankings and Kyoguchi is number two. So this will crown a legit lineal champion at Junior Flyweight. So recalibrate your excitement accordingly. (laughs) Um, A few quick items having nothing to do with the upcoming boxing schedule. I'm not sure how worthy this one is of inclusion, but I'll mention it. Dan Raphael indicated in a tweet that Triller is getting out of the boxing business, but a representative of Triller said that isn't the case. Uh, There will be no Boxing Writers Association of America awards dinner this year. The BWAA will instead combine two years worth of awards into one dinner in 2023, apparently owing to pandemic delays having thrown the schedule off. I presume I won't be getting my 2022 dues refunded, though. Uh, Good news for Jamal Charlo. The middleweight title holder was facing felony assault charges for an alleged incident with a 21-year-old nephew at a family gathering in September 2021. But those charges have been dropped by the state of Texas. And lastly, former flyweight champion Horacio Acavallo of Argentina died at the age of 87 after a long battle with Alzheimer's. Acavallo had a pro record of 72, 2, and 6 with 34 knockouts and held a pair of flyweight belts from 1966 to 68. Kieran, what would you like to comment on here? So I heard from another boxing industry contact who generally gives me pretty good intel, especially about left coast-based boxing, um, and who's also worked a little bit with the Vargas family, that... Mm -hmm. um, also that Triller was out of boxing. Um, and that was a short time before Dan posted that tweet. But as you mentioned, Ryan Kavanaugh was pretty explicit to Michael Woods that that is not the case and that they have an event or events planned with Fernando's kids. Um, and even if Kavanaugh is telling the truth, it's certainly with no disrespect to the Vargas brothers at all, quite a step down from the massive industry disrupting plans with which they launched. Um, but it's so often us, isn't it? Rich guys think they know what it takes to do things differently, spend a lot of money, find out that, well, there's a reason boxing has been working a particular way and lose a lot of money and disappear again. Um, It's not that important, actually, the thriller news or non-news. The only reason I sort of focus on it is because um, 
it sort of sets up my tweet of the week, which is oh, actually okay. a tweet thread of the week. Um, it's from Gray Johnson, who's an editor at BoxRec, who tweets as at BoxRec Gray, yes. Gray with an E. Um, and he's now changed his handle to Triller Boxing Historian. Um, <laughs> and the thread is a quick trip through Triller Boxing's quote-unquote greatest hits over the past couple of years. Ooh. Isn't the prettiest of reading if you're Ryan Kavanaugh or a fan of Triller. Uh, I'll just cite a couple. It begins with, it's not all um, in, in order. It's just obviously as it occurs to him. It begins with May 14th, 2022, Evan Holyfield enters the Triller Fight Club for a routine tune-up against Jermaine McDonald and gets knocked out in round two. And it sort of goes on from there. <laughs> Continues with reminders such as Jerry Forrest versus Kubrat Pulev is delayed by an hour and a half because the gloves provided for Jerry Forrest do not fit. Um, let's remember October 6th, 2021, after winning a purse bid of $6,018,000 for Teofimo Lopez versus George Cambosis, the IBF fined Triller in default of its contract obligation to stage the bout. As a result, Triller loses $1.2 million deposit. Teo makes $900,000 without throwing a punch. Um, November 27th, 2021, Nick Cannon is hired to host Triad Combat and introduces head of team MMA Rampage Jackson and head of team boxing Shannon Briggs. The entire event is built around them fighting in the future. And again, it never happens. Um, April 12th, 2022, I receive an email with the headline, Triller Fight Club announces largest slate of events in 2022, most robust schedule of any fight league in existence. And he notes that with the exception of one event on May 14th and a couple of bare knuckle events with which Triller is involved, quote, none of these shows have or will occur. Um, <laughs> Triller had some success. Lots of people watched that Tyson Jones exhibition and mm -hmm. Jake Paul flattening Ben Askren. And whether it was necessary or well thought through or not, they, they tried to do things differently. And there's no harm in at least seeing if new approaches are worth attempting with new generations. But they gave money to Donald Trump, for God's sake. And if they do disappear from boxing, that in itself is reason enough to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I missed that whole tweet thread. I did notice the handle change from BoxRec Gray. <laughs> um, I did get a kick out of that, but I, I hadn't read through that uh, tweet thread. But uh, oof, that's uh, a lot of quote-unquote highlights. Uh, There's in, a lot a more that, of where time. they came from as well, I tell okay. you. That's barely scraping the uh, the surface of, uh, of that thread. All right. Oof. All right. Okay. Let's conclude with my top five challenge. Last week, you tasked me with identifying the five heavyweights in history who I thought would have had the best chance of beating Tyson Fury. You didn't specify that they had to be fighters who would actually necessarily right. beat Tyson Fury. And I haven't necessarily attempted to say that they would have done. But these are the ones who came to my mind as possibly having the best chance. And honestly, the list is pretty short. This isn't one of those that has a whole ton of honorable mentions. I came up with five, with one possible, maybe honorable mention that might be interesting. Okay. But I will be very interested to see who you came up with and, and if you had more. So um, here's my sort of reverse order here. Uh, number five, I put Vitaly Klitschko. Um, his brother was the better technician, um, but particularly in his lengthy second reign after Manny Stewart had corrected his flaws and that, that led to him being knocked out by Lehman Brewster, he, Vladimir was guilty of overthinking at times. And particularly with him being near the end of his career, that proved to be his undoing when he did meet Fury. But Vitaly was the more instinctive fighter. And, and actually, he was more fighter than boxer. Um, look, he would have struggled with Fury's boxing and footwork. There's no doubt about that. But he would have kept coming. Um, and unlike his brother, he, he had a palacious chin. I think he would have taken Fury's best shots and kept coming. Um, and that ramrod jab of his might have kept Fury on the back foot. Um, 
And as virtually everyone on this list, mild spoiler alert, would have done, he had the size to compete as well. So that's why I've got him on my list. Um, number four, George Foreman. And here I'm picking the second comeback version of Foreman. Yep. Um, the first one might have done more damage, but he also might have become frustrated by Fury. He might have tired himself out trying to land the big shot. Um, the older Foreman was enormously relaxed in the ring. He would have had the stamina to go all the way through. He had a good chin too. And that chin would have been harder to reach with that cross-arm defense he deployed. Um, he would have done the one thing that is probably essential against Fury. He would have jabbed him hard to the chest constantly, which I think might prove to be the single most effective punch to deploy against the Gypsy King. He wouldn't have been intimidated for even a second. And he had the mental strength to remain focused and, and the concussive one-punch power to keep Fury honest. Number three, I put Riddick Bow, And here I'm thinking of the best version of Bow. Specifically, the version that we never really got, except in flashes. Um, the, 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 the world dominator we hoped we'd get, not the lazy version we far too often had to. The bow who beat Jorge Luis Gonzalez would have had the combination of size and speed and power and skills and venom. He showed venom against Gonzalez that he didn't show enough. Um, but he would have taken the fight to Fury. He wouldn't have been bamboozled by Fury's tricks in the ring, even if he might not have overcome them. Um, Number two, Muhammad Ali. He's the one guy on this list who doesn't approach Fury in terms of size. But Ali's the one heavyweight in history who could do everything Fury does and do it better. He's a better boxer. He's better defensively. Had better footwork. He was faster. He was just all around better. He wouldn't have faced anyone like Fury before. But Fury wouldn't have met anyone like Ali either. And, and I can see Ali, despite being a shorter man, actually staying outside of Fury's long reach, sort of goading him into coming forward, uh, using his speed to slide in under the jab, you know, uh, uh, work the body, move out. I think he would have focused early on the body. He wouldn't have wasted punches going after Fury's head until Fury had begun to slow down. I think people sometimes forget about Ali in the ring. He was mean. He would have tried to hurt Fury. Um, plus, Fury would have been outclassed in the buildup, right? Fury thinks himself a witty man. But he would have just looked like the class clown next to mm. Ali, I think, during fight week. Um, and I'm thinking particularly about the Ali who beat Cleveland Williams, the immediately right. before exile kind of Muhammad Ali here. But my number one is Lennox Lewis. I just think that Lennox matches up to Fury better than anyone. He's got the size. He's got the reach, the boxing fundamentals, power. He has the cool to not be knocked off stride by anything Fury does. He wouldn't overcommit and allow Fury to counter him, but he'd also be unlikely to make the kind of mistakes that Fury could capitalize on. And look, some people might say, what about his chin? He got knocked out twice. Lewis was off his feet twice after hellacious punches in fights he didn't take anything like seriously enough. He would have taken this seriously. Um, otherwise, he took the best that his opponents had to offer. Hard-hitting guys like Klitschko and Ray Mercer, for example, and he came through them. I think if you were designed the perfect boxer to have a good chance against Fury, he'd be tall, skilled, powerful, cool, calm, and collected. And Lennox Lewis was that man. And the one sort of really out of left field, unlikely, but it might be kind of interesting, everybody has the surprising guy who is difficult to fight guy, is Jimmy Young, simply hmm. because he was an unusual heavyweight in that uh, he had that defensive, slick, counter-punching kind of style that undressed Foreman and, and gave Ali some trouble and gave a lot of the other guys trouble. Not by any means one of the greatest heavyweights of that era, 
Styles make fights. Maybe he would have given Fury a bit of a hard time because of such an unusual style. So those were the ones I came up with. And I will say for Tyson Fury, there's not very any of them that I would say he would they would absolutely have beaten him at all. I just right. think that these are the guys who might have had a good best chance. What do you think? What's your yeah. list? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting list, and we kind of this is a good case of us coming up with lists that have some overlap but some differences. Okay. We're not sharing a brain. We're not completely on different pages here. Uh, the only thing I didn't think of at all was Jimmy Young, but as you explained it, sure, makes some sense. He was just the kind of tricky guy who. You never know how he was going to match up against anyone until you saw it in action. Um, we have the same number one. I put Lennox at number one okay. with a lot of the same thinking that the chin issues he showed in his two losses, Tyson Fury, A, as you pointed out, he's not as likely to take Tyson Fury lightly. And B, those were big one-shot kind of guys, and that's not really Tyson Fury. Even though yeah. he can punch, he's not hes not that one-punch, out-of-nowhere, knock-you-out kind of fighter. So we agree on number one, um, but otherwise my list varied a little from yours. I had Vitaly much higher than you did. I had okay. him at number two. That's I fine. thought, yeah, yeah. he's... He's as awkward as Tyson Fury in yep. his own way, and I think would be a real handful, and that's kind of a coin flip type of fight for me, which tells you something that the guy I've got at number two here, I consider about a coin flip. So it, it gives you a sense yeah. of just how hard Tyson Fury would be to beat for most of these heavyweights. The one guy who cracked my top five that you didn't mention is Larry Holmes. I have him at oh, number yeah. three. I think, you know, his jab, he's just big enough that yeah. he can match up size-wise with. He'd be the smaller man, but not hopelessly outmatched in that regard. Has the great jab, can really do a little of everything. I, I think he's in that 50-50 kind of realm against Tyson Fury. I have Ali on my list also. Certainly going with the prime mid to late 60s Ali. The 70s Ali, I might make a bit of an underdog against uh, against yeah. prime Fury. And I had the, at number five, exact same thought as you. George Foreman, but it's got to be the older one. The, yeah. the, the younger one is going to probably unravel against Tyson Fury at some point in, in that fight and just wouldn't hold it together well enough. Would have a puncher's chance, but not quite like the older version. Um, and then I, I did have a few more honorable mentions. Uh, Joe Lewis, I think despite the amount of size he's giving up, mm. he was such a special puncher with that right hand that I'd give him a decent shot. Um Vladimir Klitschko in his prime, we saw what happened with toward the end of the road Vladimir Klitschko, although that, in fairness, that was a pre-prime Tyson Fury. So, mm. um, but I still, you know, I would give a, a prime Vladimir a decent chance, but not as good a chance as his brother. Mike Tyson and Joe Frazier, I'll, and you know what, I'll throw Evander Holyfield in also. Those are my other three that I'll, I'll kind of lump them together as, yeah, they're giving away a lot of size, but in the case of Tyson and Frazier, they can be explosive, and you don't know quite how Tyson Fury's going to mm, deal with having mm. a punch down at a guy that much smaller and whether he might leave himself open. Uh, Holyfield, not quite as short as the, as Frazier and Tyson, um, but, you know, has this kind of this motor and this drive that maybe he gets to Tyson Fury, but they're all at, at a bit of a size disadvantage. Um, the only one on your list that I didn't give a whole lot of thought to is Riddick Bowe, although you make the point that when he was at his best, which wasn't often, maybe he's a real tough matchup for Fury. I just, we saw him not at his best so frequently yeah. that uh, I couldn't quite uh, find a spot for him in my top five. Yeah, I think actually in hindsight that Holmes is a better call than Bo. I'll, I'll give you that because 
mentally he was better if nothing right. else you right. know he was always on his game and yeah he he wouldn't have, have let fury get to him at all and his fundamentals were so good and you you just always knew that larry holmes wasn't going to disappoint you um and yeah i think i think that's a good call actually i okay. i would probably if i were to have that again with that in mind I, I might make that make that change but otherwise once again disturbingly similar well, yes and no. You know, yes, we had the same you know, we had number one. Same we had yeah. four of the same people, but number one was the only spot we had the yeah. same. We moved a few of the others around. I think this was a good mix of lists lists that are similar in ways and different in other ways. There you go. See, we don't have the same brain at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> lucky for you. <laughs> lucky for me. Lucky for both of us. Exactly. Lucky all the way around. Exactly. Alfie and I. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with post-fight analysis of Stevenson, Conseil Sao, and Joyce Parker, and more. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.